This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., Here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the long view polyoptic style, James Fallows of The Atlantic, with a cover article titled Obama Explained, the must-read article of the month, brought to life by the author and former White House speechwriter. Then Steve Ratner, the man behind the man behind the man who saved the American auto industry and lived to write a very cool book about it. His take on the polyoptics of Obama in year four and his advice for Mitt Romney. I am joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role that I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here. Adam, it is great to be with you. Uh, We've got a a bunch of great guests uh, this week. However, it's important for us to talk about that I think this week was a turning point for the Obama White House in which they really kind of started to figure out how to use that home of theirs. Yeah, these are the kind of things that you just have to take a risk on. And the President of the United States sponsoring the second uh, annual White House Science Fair was captured with the most unbelievable still image uh, standing next to a fourth grader as he launched a air pressurized cannon and a marshmallow across the state dining room but Josh it's the look on the president's face and the reality of how he was interfacing with these kids and being it just struck me as being a plus polyoptics the joy of of childhood uh you know barack obama is not that old guy that he can't for a moment love the image of a marshmallow flying across the east room potentially get uh bashing into the gilbert stewart portrait of, of george washington yeah but michelle obama is outdoing the president and we're starting to be reminded about how playful and how fun and how unbelievably energetic she can be with what she did with jimmy fallon yeah let's hear a bit of that because we remember when we had steve rabinowitz on talking about turning the white house into a football stadium uh, with the east room covered in artificial turf between what president obama did with the science fair and what michelle obama did with Jimmy Fallon, the White House is now once again a place for a little bit of fun. You all right, Jimmy? What? Yeah, definitely. What's next? Potato sack race. Well, we're all tied up. Potato sack race for all the marbles. Good luck. You're gonna need it. Oh my God, I know that it's radio, folks, and you had to see it. But Michelle Obama, so vibrant a woman, and she just was taking very seriously her uh, Let's Move campaign, but she brought this straight into the White House. This was all going on in, what, the the East Room and the Diplomatic Reception Room? Josh, it was just Rabinowitz on steroids. Absolutely. And you, you know, Adam, from the, the, the movies that you produced for President Bush and the ones that I was involved with with President Clinton is that when a outside production company comes in and sets up shots, uh, it, it does consume the focus of the White House. You have to stop tours. You have to light the place. You have to coordinate off. And when you and we'll put up on polyoptics.com uh, both images of the science fair and the Jimmy Fallon potato sack race. But that was a lot of, of 
of filmmaking that went on with Jimmy Fallon and Michelle Obama. Yeah, and a little credit to me. I want to pat myself on the back when I say that when I saw the science fair shot, and I think the one that really got me going was uh, this photo by AP photographer Saul Loeb, uh, I immediately posted it to the Polyoptics Facebook page and then followed up with the White House video so people could see the context and see the the real Obama that was behind this. This wasn't just the image. It was exactly who he was. And, and what was great about all of it was the authenticity. Uh, and I think that, that we try and do that at the, at the Facebook page so people can go there all the time and see it. But we have some really serious Polyoptics uh, interviews to get to today, Josh. So, Adam, we are lucky to be joined uh, today on Polyoptics, our 44th episode, uh, by Jim Fallows uh, of The Atlantic. Uh, Jim has the cover story in uh, the March issue, a beautiful shot of a full f- the full face of President Barack Obama. Headline, Obama Explained, Chess Master or Pawn? Jim Fallows, such a incredible writing resume, but a resume that begins uh, after Harvard and the Crimson, I think, with a stint in the White House as Jimmy Carter's chief speechwriter. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on with you. You know, one of the interesting phrases in the article, uh, which I think is going to be online and available on newsstands in the next uh, over this weekend, is a quote that you, that you said here. You said, the test for presidents is not where they begin, but how fast they learn and where they end up. I think that's very appropriate for the president you worked for, that I worked for, Bill Clinton, that Adam worked for, for George Bush. None of us have worked for Barack Obama, but take us through, through your reporting, the Obama version of this and where he has ended up right now, February 2012, and if he gets reelected, where you think he might be in February 2016. Well, part of the premise of this piece, which I appreciate you giving me a chance to to talk about, is that something that's obvious to all of us inside politics is not so obvious to to the outside world, which is that everything about a president's perceived success or failure is so much affected by actually whether they're re-elected. For example, um, if you have all the things that went right for the first President Bush or for Jimmy Carter, my one-time employer, the fact that they lost retrospectively gives this sort of cast of failure to everything that, that they did, even the uh, the Gulf War success for President Bush, even Camp David agreements and other things for, for Jimmy Carter. And on the other side, if a president is reelected, as Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or George W. Bush were, then the missteps of the first term, the times when it looked as if they were really going off the cliff, those are all bathed in the narrative of a path towards, uh, towards vindication at the reelection time. And so The reason I wanted to do this article now was this is a unique moment to try to look at the first three years of the Obama presidency without knowing uh, how this verdict is going to be rendered, without knowing whether it'll look like part of the the, um, sometimes halting but successful prelude to a two-term presidency or as providing the seeds of what went wrong and led to his, uh, his, his defeat this fall. So that was the uh, the conceit with which I went to interview a lot of former national office holders and political veterans. And I'll say that I talked to more Democrats than Republicans for this reason. Uh, I didn't want to find people who were axiomatically against Obama just because they wanted him to lose. Rather, people who were 
on the whole sympathetic to what he was trying to do, but then wanted to judge where he went wrong, when he where he went right, and essentially, and, and especially where he was adjusting. I think to me the most interesting part of what I found was adjustments that he is and is not making in uh, from from his orig- from his starting point. I say this all the time in my uh, everyday job. Uh, but when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I try and view politics so often through that polyoptic lens. And I, I immediately was drawn to the insights in, in this cover article Obama explained because it felt like at a very high level, it was an understanding and an appreciation of the polyoptics of this presidency. There's a point in the article where you write, the history, and this is the history that you so artfully take us through in this narrative of the first three years of the Obama administration, is relevant, you say, because it shows how quickly impressions of strength or weakness can evaporate and become almost impossible to reimagine. And I feel like you've given so many great examples of this, but won't you take us through uh, for our listeners some of these examples of weakness evaporating and becoming almost impossible to reimagine. Well, th- thanks for going into that, which is something that, that really is on my mind. In the world of Washington politics and the whole sort of political chat empire that now occupies a number of cable news channels nonstop and, and lots of radio and other outlets, we act as if we know for sure that what is happening today gives us a way to predict what will happen in next year's election or th- this fall's election, what's going to happen in the next term of Congress. Even we've already seen handicapping articles for what the field is going to be in 2016, depending on who wins this coming election. And yet in real time, many things that seem uh, in retrospect as if they were fated were much more um, uncertain. So, for example, I, I have mentioned that I, I worked for, uh, for President Carter. I had left him to join the Atlantic by the time he was beginning his re-election run against Ronald Reagan. And in retrospect, retrospect, because we know that Reagan won big against Jimmy Carter in 1980, and because we know that Reagan had a 49-state sweep against uh, Walter Mondale in 1984, we assume that, of course, it must always have been fated that he was going to have a big win over Carter. But in fact, even though Carter had so many things working against him, that 1980 election in real time was very close. Uh, Carter had the Iranian hostage crisis going on. The first anniversary was Election Day. The prime interest rate that spring had been 21 percent. Carter had had a terrible primary challenge by uh, Teddy Kennedy that, that, that spring. He'd had the failed Iranian hostage uh, rescue mission. Despite all of that, in the two weeks before the 1980 election, most most polls showed it to be a more or less a dead heat with Carter ahead in some of them. By similar logic, uh, we know in retrospect that the Hillary Care proposal by the Clinton administration in its first year was overreach. It was not crafted in a way that Congress could buy into. But in real time, in the first couple of months of 1993, many people were saying, oh, yes, this is going along well. Congressional committees were, were buying on. Um, I'm happy to go down a long list of things. My main, I'll I'll give you one other illustration. Um, We now use the term, you know, McGovernism or the name Senator George McGovern as a shorthand for what we know to be a doomed uh, political um, effort just because we know that the results of the 1972 election were so one-sided in terms of the re-election of Richard Nixon. But at the time, Nixon himself was uncertain enough of the outcome that he had the Watergate burglars go and break into the Democratic National Headquarters. The main thing I'm I'm trying to convey is something that I know that you understand in politics, but many of our lay colleagues don't, which is 
we think we know moment by moment, but the fog of war is really uh, profound, and the conventional wisdom can change very rapidly. It was uh, it was f- less than four years ago that the most sophisticated political observers thought that Sarah Palin was going to be the, the this secret. This is one of my McCain's favorite success. examples that, that you give because it's not only in bright technicolor in our memories, but... Uh, There is this cross narrative, and there was such a surge as you describe, and yet it turned out to be anything but. And there's also, remember, uh, Dukakis, after he secures the delegates for the nomination or goes to the convention in Atlanta, it looks like he's up in the polls, but then he goes out to the Berkshires for a vacation. John Kerry, uh, also the nomination in hand, goes windsurfing off the coast of Nantucket. It's made into a blistering commercial by the Bush camp, and suddenly the, the roles are reversed, right, Jim? Oh, yes, exactly right. And I'm thinking also, of course... Bill Clinton. Uh, in retrospect, we think of him as this kind of sun god of untouchable uh, political power and being uh, right in all his political instincts. But but I remember personally from uh, mutual friends who, who had known Clinton and I, I had known them and had met Clinton back in the 1970s, in the fall of 1991, that is a little, little more than a year after Clinton was elected president for the first time in 92, uh, George W. Bush, uh, sorry, George H.W. Bush was still seeming so omnipotent from having won in the Gulf War that there was open uh, discussion about whether anybody could run against him or whether this guy Clinton was having a, a preposterous risk by running against him. It was also the case that, that uh, two years after Clinton's election, Newt Gingrich seemed to be, again, this unstoppable figure in politics because he had humiliated uh, Clinton so badly in the midterm elections. Two years after that, of course, Clinton has a landslide re-election against Bob Dole, and not long after that, Newt Gingrich uh, uh, comes to the first of his many (laughs) dramatic ups and downs. So it's a wild business we're in. You're listening, uh, as Adam and I are, to uh, a great writer, Jim Fallows of The Atlantic Magazine. He's got a cover story in uh, the March issue of Atlantic Obama Explained. You're listening to Polyoptics on POTUS, Channel 124 on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Jim, Adam and I have both read you for a long time. I mean, I go back to some of those Atlantic articles, uh, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s and followed your career closely. And, you know, it's it seems like the opportunity that you must have planned, oh, sort of back in the middle of last year, probably talking to Jim Bennett about, boy, I'd like to do this article, but it's got to be perfectly timed uh, because it can't be before the narrative of the race gets too far set up and we can't make this prediction. I'd love I, to hear your, your the sort of process in which you say, when am I going to do this article and how am I going to do it? Uh, that is a, a great and uh, question where I may have a, a, a semi-surprising answer. So the background point is if you're in the monthly magazine business, you're really in a different category of the news from newspapers or, or news weeklies because we have to plan roughly six months in advance of what we're going to do because there's about a, a, there's a sort of physical almost one-month lead time between when we finally send things off to the printers and when they appear in the mail or online as the story is, is doing now. And then there's a couple of months before that for doing this sort of extensive reporting that we're doing. And so I'll give you two illustrations in the path, uh, in the past of how we applied this. Uh, Before the 2004 election, 
we knew that we were going to have our December issue would come out after the election happened, but would go to press before the votes were cast. So we'd have to have a cover story that would come out after either George W. Bush was reelected or John Kerry had beaten him, but we'd have to write it not knowing who had won. So the way we dealt with that was to say, what's going to be an issue that will be important no matter who is in office? And we had Iran and whether they were developing a nuclear bomb as that issue. And so we had a cover story which I wrote about a war game of whether you could actually take out an Iranian weapon in a uh, preemptive strike. That, that was one approach. Another was in the fall of 2002. Cullen Murphy, who was then the editor, said, we know that war is coming with Iraq. We know that the U.S. will win militarily. What will happen then? So I began the reporting for something that ended up being called the 51st state of interviewing military officials of what would happen after the U.S. invaded Iraq and after we won, what we should be prepared for. And that came out uh, before the war. In this case, we decided uh, last summer, uh, last June, we began making a series of incessant requests to the White House for an interview. We're saying, look, we're going to do this serious article on how the the administration has gone so far. Um, our writer, that is me, Fallows, would like to interview the president in a serious way. And we went for months and months and months. We tried to get an interview, which in the end didn't happen. So we were sort of two tracking it. Either this is going to be President Obama talking himself about the lessons of his successes or failures, or it was going to be everybody else who's been in this situation talking about what he should have been learning or should not not have been learning. If there's anyone who Barack Obama might want to welcome into the Oval Office, it's someone who has served for two years, a Democratic president who has uh, had a close relationship with the next Democratic president, Bill Clinton, and who is self-professed, you know, to be middle left of center and probably would do a sympathetic portrait. Why do you think Jay Carney or Barack Obama or David Axelrod sort of uh, gave you the, the, the cold shoulder? <laughs> um, one answer will be, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> another, another answer is, I think being honest and being crass about it, they don't care about audiences like ours. You know, that, that I think that, that, that it's in the time in which we were trying to get uh, this interview, which went on for quite a while, there were a couple of TV interviews they did. Uh, there was, you know, a, a Diane Sawyer interview and not Oprah, but something Oprah-like. And I, I, I think they must have crassly decided, number one, as all three of us know, a president's time is the scarcest commodity in the universe. So, uh, of course, uh, there's always going to be more competition for his time. There's going to be uh, opportunities. Second, they figured that that um, relatively serious readers like ours, they weren't going to bother with, and instead they'd go for, they, they thought maybe the TV networks would give them more of the potential swing voters. I don't know. Frankly, I think it was a mistake. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm sorry that I was, didn't have a chance to talk with the president about these things. Um, I tried to make the best of the circumstance by saying, okay, let's ha see how this universe looks if every if it's, if it's we're describing the elephant but not talking to the elephant himself. We're talking to everybody who's dealt with the elephant over the decades. I, I particularly, I mean, I appreciate the... Uh the dual tracking and, and the uh, hope for having landed the interview with the president. I love the way that it turned out. And I want to share just an anecdote because while I was going through what I call my George period, before I worked for George W. Bush, I worked for George Stephanopoulos. And Stephanopoulos was the one who really turned me on to, uh, to James Fallows because 
it was you're so often quoted on that broadcast. And I wouldn't be surprised if Steph uh, pulled something for this Sunday's show out of this article. Uh, and one of the things that I might have pointed uh, to from this article for George, if I were still working with him, would be this quote from Mondale. When you had to go find other people who had a great insight and also knowledge through experience... Uh, he says, you have to understand emotionally what people are feeling and going through. You have to cut through whatever intellectual jargon is given to you by your advisors, your pollsters, cut right to the core. He says, we don't see that in Obama. I see him try to synthesize it, but it comes across as synthetic. And so I wonder, for me, this is the story of the polyoptics failures of this administration. Is that a very fair statement does he hit it on the nail the nail on the head there you, you know I, i'm i'm glad that you i'm glad about two things you, you just mentioned one is uh george stephanopoulos stephanopoulos who i i know and admire quite a bit i remember i first met him when i was going to see uh, back in that 1991 i was mentioning where bill clinton was giving one of his early uh, foreign policy speeches at uh, at georgetown university and so uh stephanopoulos was then a relatively um under actually i'd met him earlier in in the gephardt days too but it's, it's been really uh hard to see his his ascent in politics and, and journalism o- over the years. But mentioning Mondale, it was so I was so touched actually that former Vice President Mondale agreed to talk with me. This was you know, his family had been through the the shock of his daughter's um, right. untimely death from cancer, and he was sort of going into um, into understandable um, uh, seclusion for a while. But he was willing to talk, and he spoke very movingly about what he'd learned in his politicking, especially in some of the Iron Range parts of Minnesota, that when people lose their jobs, when people lose their houses, it's not just an economic dislocation. Everything about them feels humiliated and lost and ashamed, and that politicians need to be able to recognize that somehow. It would come instinctively to a Bill Clinton and less naturally to a Barack Obama, who is whose natural register is issues of of race, certainly in international relations, but on these economic justice issues, it doesn't seem to come as much from his core. It comes from his intellect, but not from his own personal experience as some of the other things do. I, I should add for our listeners, and, and Adam has touched on this by bringing it up, but uh, listeners should note that this is such a unique article that it includes not only discussions with Walter Mondale, but Michael Dukakis and Gary Hart. I mean, the people who were on the losing end of the stick uh, on some important Democratic elections. So that perspective is is fascinating. And, you know, as I remember being a student of the 84 campaign, uh, certainly as I've written about a lot, even though as a Democrat, uh, I learned a lot of my tricks from Michael Deaver. And I always lamented that that image that you just cast of Walter Mondale out on the Iron Range in Minnesota was so infrequently shown. Uh, there was one picture that Dirk Halstead had of uh, Senator or candidate Mondale uh, with his foot on the edge of a little fishing boat in one of Minnesota's 10,000 lakes talking to a fisherman. And I thought to myself back, you know, all those years ago that if people just got to see more of this Mondale than this sort of downtown Cleveland labor rally Mondale, people would have caught into him a little bit more. Oh, I, I think that, that that's so. And and he is a person, I, I you know, the, the injustice and the cruelty of po- political life is so extreme, as, as we all know. And the fact that, that Walter Mondale lost when running for re-election as vice president with uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980 and then lost running for president against Ronald Reagan in 1984, that that 
unfairly or cruelly colors the, the reputation of somebody who I think is really a great empathetic human being and leader. And I'm glad that he served as, as ambassador to Japan, was honored for that. And he's somebody I really respect tremendously. As I take a look at uh, the long view, uh, again, through this polyoptic lens uh, of the Obama administration, one of the things that stands out, and we talk about this frequently, uh, Jim, uh, here on Polyoptics on Sirius XM, is that the president is, is, can be very cool. And you, t- you touch on this in the article. You, you, there's a section where we, where we explore uh, through your writing cool versus cold. And a lot of the events that this administration have staged uh, as, as vehicles for political rhetoric are extremely sterile. This blue drape, same flags. I mean, it could have been set up in a garage somewhere and he didn't even need to leave the White House because they all look the same. And yet you point to two bits of crisis communications that the president just swung away on and had enormous success, one of them being uh, the the ceremony out in Arizona following that horrible shooting that uh, took the lives of many and, and uh, wounded almost mortally Gabby Giffords. Explore that for us, will you? Uh, part of the, the context here is, is, again, as you both well understand, and many listeners do too, that every person in politics is is limited. The range of skills it would take to be all competent as a president is more than any human being has ever possessed. To be able to talk about the sort of economic injustice we were mentioning before, but also have uh, good analytical skills and to talk about international issues and all those. So we have to hope that presidents make the most of their natural strengths and try to, to, to shore up the others. And the Gabby Giffords um, tragedy, and I think probably uh, the other one that, 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 that was in this context was the controversy over Reverend Wright back during the campaign. Yeah, the race speech. Yes, uh, the, the, uh, from Reverend Wright, who then with his goddamned America, not God bless America, but goddamn America. Note to any listeners, I am quoting, not saying this myself, <laughs> that, that in both cases, I think aspects of Barack Obama's natural strengths were were called on in, in the response. One of those is that while he is often seen as being somewhat impersonal in the very small gatherings in which Bill Clinton would shine and perhaps even George W. Bush, I, I never saw him, so, so I don't know, but those very intimate politics, uh, political gatherings, uh, that is not as much his métier than the uh, the televised or mediated event where he can speak to a to a national problem or crisis or concern, as was the case with that, tu- that Tucson speech. So it was formally, it was playing to his strength of being able to have the big speech where he can address these issues. And in terms of content, it also was uh, in his wheelhouse, so to speak. As I say, issues of justice and the national character and relationships among different groups and relationships of Americans in the world, all those things are part of his background, his personal story, things he's written about very well uh, in his books and speeches. So I think both the race speech where he's talking about the issue that first brought him to national attention and the Giffords speech where he was talking about extremism and inability to talk with, with one another and all the rest, those both were forms that he was good at and topics he had uh, devoted himself deeply to. So I think they played to his best, whereas many of his economic speeches are more of a sort of reach for him. And they've become better, but it's less of an instinctive success. 
Well, for our listeners who uh, want to know where Jim Fallows thinks Barack Obama might go in a second term uh, and whether he will get a second term, they'll have to go to Atlantic.com or uh, to their local newsstand to pick up the March issue of Atlantic. I should say that for James Fallows fans like Adam Belmar and me, uh, we are treated to a lot of what I found is embedded touchstones in this article, uh, that for people who wait a long time for another one of Jim's articles to come out, you you see it opens up with this wonderful vignette of Austin Goolsby oh, uh, flying around uh, somewhere over the Midwest in some in some severe turbulence and uses that as a metaphor for what a uh, new Obama administration found upon taking office. There's also a long description in the back in terms of case studies and using the relationship with China, which few writers know more about than James Fallows, and talks about that Obama trip uh, in a way that I don't think Adam and I would have evaluated it at the time when so many people panned it. Uh, but you you come out and give a, a reasoned view about why in the long run, in the strategic run, as a chess master, Barack Obama has has used that relationship successfully and the relationship with China is on a better course than it was in December of 2008. So I urge people to go out and read it. Uh, Adam and I have. It's great. Jim Fellows, thanks so yeah, much for joining back us again. It's a real pleasure to be on with you two experts in the field, so thanks for giving me the time. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. How do we come from behind? How do we come together? And how do we win? Detroit's showing us it can be done. And what's true about them is true about all of us. This country can't be knocked out with one punch. We get right back up again, and when we do, the world's going to hear the roar of our engines. The roar of our engines, Joshua. Adam, were you watching the Super Bowl as I was and watched this two-minute spot go down? I think the, the price tag on that spot alone, if you if you priced it out by the 30-minute bite would be about $14 million. But you know what? It was Clint, and it just riveted me. It, it did. And you know what? If you're an advertising uh, maven, uh, you, you think long and hard in the year running up to the Super Bowl, what can I do uh, and put on the air at the right moment and combine it, combine the narrative of the game they are at halftime with the voice of Clint Eastwood talking about halftime in America? that is going to get water cooler conversation for the next five days. And they accomplished it, didn't they? Oh, they just hit it right out of the park. I loved it, and it was a great follow-on to, uh, you know, imported from Detroit and some of the great messaging. But really, the political story behind it is what we get to explore right now, and I'm really excited about doing it. That's right. We're lucky to have uh, in our microphone in our studio today Steve Ratner. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with Steve, coming out of Brown, went right to the New York Times, uh, and was one of the real high flyers of, of the Gray Lady before moving on to Wall Street, Lazard, uh, ultimately forming Quadrangle Group, uh, and then doing something very interesting uh, when he, uh, when Obama finally won the election. Larry Summers called and asked him to take over the overhaul of the auto industry did that for uh, about six or seven months from the beginning of the Obama administration until uh, bankruptcies for Chrysler and GM were were begun and uh, emerged 
from it writing a book called uh, Overhaul, which uh, uh, has was a bestseller and has been on the bookshelves for about 14 or 15 months and is now seen at least weekly on my favorite morning program, Morning Joe, as the chart guy. But he's going to spend a few minutes with us here in Polyoptics. Welcome, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. What did you think if you were watching the Patriots and the Giants and the and the disappointing result of that of that game <laughs> for me anyway? Uh, did you were you expecting that two minute ad in the middle? I was not. I was certainly aware of the ad they did a year ago uh, where they coined the phrase imported from Detroit. And if you remember, they did an M&M ad, which was also pretty edgy, uh, not quite as powerful as this one. And I honestly wasn't thinking much about it. And then I saw this ad, and like you guys, I said, wow, this is really dazzling. And of course, one of the great ironies of this ad is that Chrysler is now owned by Fiat and, and run by Sergio Marchionne, who's Italian. He didn't do this ad, but he obviously approved it. And so it's kind of ironic to have a Italian-owned carmaker doing the quintessential American ad and having it be so incredibly, incredibly emotive. Three years now after you began uh, as assembled Team Auto and and began your work, um, you did you you did some analysis on Morning Joe this week. Uh, how how close to the message of halftime in America and what Clint Eastwood is saying do you think is accurate at this point? With respect to the auto industry, That's specifically. Right. Oh, I think the auto industry is uh, is actually a lot further along than the rest of America um, in the sense that I think we now know that we have three viable, profitable automakers in Detroit. Uh, they are exceeding, uh, certainly in the case of General Motors and Chrysler, most of what we imagined they could accomplish. They are knocking the cover off the ball. I don't think if you asked any of us whether Chrysler would be earning a profit and have repaid uh, the government and have its uh, have its market share be growing again at this point in its recovery i don't think any of us would have bet on that so it's uh, it's lived up to all of our expectations and and a bit beyond when i think about uh, the polyoptics of the situation that you were thrust into that you the challenge that you accepted uh, by coming in with and it was a very sort of adjunct role that you've been incredibly important but there wasn't this formal title and staff position that you jumped into and you describe it in the book as being uh, task oriented was was really what it was all about and you were willing to help and do anything but here you had seemingly one of the most intractable problem problems uh, with the audio industry and it, it made me think as I read the book and, and started thinking about where we are today uh, Steve Ratner about that movie that uh, people have turned to to sort of think about uh, everything that happened in that early era, late Bush, early Obama, too big to fail. Um, they haven't really told the story of autos uh, and, and the elements there, but I think back to something that you talk about in the book, and maybe you can talk about here, is the president's about to go out. You're sitting with him. You're, you're, you're making phone calls. The president's making phone calls to members of the Michigan delegation, talking to the head of the UAW, and then the feedback is okay, we still need something that people are going to understand because not a lot of folks could appreciate what the, 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 the remedy was. And you, you put in cash for clunkers, and it was this thing that from an optics perspective just overwhelmed the headlines and captured people's imagination. Was that fully baked? Were you thinking about the broad brush optics, or were you always focused on this is the right medicine, it's prescriptive? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, so 
I think in the first instance, the fact is that my team and I were very focused on the moment-to-moment financial engineering challenges. We were very much amidst the trees. We certainly tried not to lose sight of the forest, but I can't promise we never did. And so we were finance guys, and we were sitting there focused on the finances of the whole thing. Um, Cash for Clunkers, actually, there were really two reasons for it. One was the reason you said, but there was a second reason, and I give Larry Summers enormous credit for this, which was on those phone calls, the president heard the uh, Michigan delegation and the other political leaders talk about uh, the need to um, inspire people and convince them that this was for real and provide a, a motivating tool, if you will. But Larry also heard a second thing, which was that we needed to do something to shore up demand. We were focused, again, on our financial engineering and all the things that we knew how to do. Larry was looking at it as an economist and said, we've got to do something to stimulate demand. And that's so it really had two antecedents, if you will, and it worked out spectacularly well on both fronts. As you said, it did capture people's imaginations, and it worked. It was a very inexpensive form of stimulus. Critics of it say, well, all it did was get people to buy cars sooner than they otherwise would have. And my response was, yeah, well, That's what do you think point. stimulus is? Right. <laughs> all stimulus is getting people or getting uh, spending money sooner than you would otherwise spend it. And it did, in retrospect, uh, work spectacularly well and provided an enormous jump start to the whole auto recovery. Uh, you paint a picture of such uh, the need for speed uh, in the last few months of 2008 and moving into the first few months of 2009. With my, with several of my own very good friends at the Treasury Department now, and having recently left, I'm conscious of the image of the of uh, Secretary Geithner sort of home alone, without the ability to get a lot of his uh, his uh, uh, appointments confirmed. And yet, you uh, describe in great detail in overhaul how Steve Ratner, leading Team Auto, was able to put together basically this strike force that was going to carry you over the next six months. Can you tell us how you sort of worked around the fringes to get that done? So let me give you a couple of answers, including to a little bit of your of your um, preamble. The reason why we were set up as a separate task force was because the government had no Department of the Autos. It had nobody who knew anything about autos, quite frankly. It was a hallmark of our approach to government that the government did not get involved with the industrial sector, unlike if you went to Europe or Japan, you'd find people in the government who knew about autos and other industrial sectors. So there was nobody there to do it. The second reason why we were set up the way we were set up was because we had more crises than we had people to deal with them. The Treasury Department was not equipped to deal with multiple simultaneous crises. And so every existing job, traditional job, was well occupied by somebody dealing with some other crisis. And there was no bandwidth to deal with autos. So it was natural to set it up as a separate operation. And the third thing that people need to understand, and this is maybe a broader point as a takeaway, is that we were able to do what we were able to do because of the existence of the TARP program, the famous $700 billion Troubled Asset Relief Program that most people pin uh, on President Obama. It was actually set up by President Bush and his Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson. Uh, I don't like to be too melodramatic about this, but it is the program that saved America um, without the TARP program. We would have no banking system, we would have no auto industry, and I give enormous credit to uh, Hank Paulson and President Bush for doing that. That's but, why they got the movie. Uh, yeah, they got the movie. Well, they, look, they bore the, they bore the brunt of it. Tim Geithner and the rest of us certainly had our share of it, but nothing like what Paulson went through. But the point about TARP was that um, they got Congress to pass the TARP. 
It gave the Secretary of the Treasury essentially a blank check on spending, investing $700 billion, including hiring people to do that, which is very out of the norm for uh, the way the Washington process works. The moment Congress passed the program, they regretted it because they didn't like losing control that way. But it gave us the ability, simply by having Tim Geithner sign off, to put $82 billion into this industry, including the money that President Bush authorized. But it also, importantly, gave us the ability to hire these 15 people who helped. Otherwise, it would have all become a prisoner of the congressional appropriations process. And quite frankly, we'd still be arguing about it, just the way we're still arguing in Washington about everything else uh, that hasn't been done over the past three years. So um, there was a, a certain amount of luck and serendipity and whatever associated with the fact that we actually had the tools to do the job, uh, as opposed to the normal frustrations that you experience when you try to get things done in the executive branch in Washington. You had not been uh, inside the heart of politics uh, like this before. Take us for a second to what it was like for you to be sitting at the arm of the President of the United States and, uh, you know, charged with so much responsibility all at once. I tell the story in the book about my first excursion into the Oval Office during this period. I'd been there in the past, as you say, more on ceremonial kinds of things, uh, very different, obviously, than being there as a staff member. But uh, this first experience happened so much by accident that I didn't have time to think about it. Uh, Larry Summers had asked me to come over to his office uh, on the second floor of the West Wing one morning, and I got there, and I was starting to go through stuff, and Larry said, let's go downstairs. And he put on his coat. I already had my coat on. And the next thing I knew, we were in the Oval Office in front of the president. And so I had no time to think about it. I had no time to prepare. I think Larry assumed that someone would have told me that this was the plan. But in the uh, in the helter-skelter events of that incredible period, not everything always got fully communicated. And so it actually worked out well that I had no time to be scared or to think about it. Suddenly, I was in front of the president. And Larry was setting the stage and then turning to me and saying, now, Steve, go through where we are in this process. Um, and then, frankly, a combination of being so busy um, and like anything, once you've done it a couple times, it gets pretty familiar. By the third or fourth time I was in the Oval Office, I felt like I was uh, back on Wall Street going to see a colleague down the hall. I don't want to, uh, that's obviously a bit of an overstatement, but not too much of one. It, um, the president is a pretty informal guy. The way he ran the West Wing was quite informal, uh, very much like I, I knew from business, not all that different. A meeting is a meeting, a business meeting is a business meeting. And uh, I, as I said in my book, I was incredibly um, pleasantly surprised at how professional what went on in the West Wing was. I guess I assumed it would be some mix of uh, an impenetrable bureaucracy and down and dirty politics, and it was really neither of those two. In the archive that tracks this, the career of Steve Ratner, uh, from the Times to Lazard to Quadrangle, uh, the, your relationship with President Clinton, Vice President Gore, Senator Kerry, uh, the prediction might have been that uh, Steve Ratner might have uh, spent a longer time uh, and a different gig in Washington after uh, after one of these guys got into office. Instead, you formed Team Auto, and you're in and out in six months. Now that that's sort of two years in the rearview mirror, do you reflect at all? And I won't make you you know read any passages from the book, but I'd love to hear it directly. Is that a way for a guy like you to do it these days, rather than to to be Tim and to spend four years in it? Would would you do it again for another six months? 
We had a unique set of circumstances. We had a uh, very unusual problem. We had this urgency that you described at the beginning where it had to get solved quickly. Everybody was determined that we not kick the can down the road, that we not put money in without a fundamental restructuring. General Motors was facing a billion dollar bond repayment on June 1st, a little bit like the situation with Greece at the moment. And we had a hard deadline. We knew we had to get this done by then. We weren't going to give a billion dollars to a bunch of bondholders who didn't deserve it. So it was on this very four short time frame. And uh, I was very lucky that I had that. Usually people go in the government and they work away for two or three or four years. And maybe they have something to show for it. Maybe they don't. A government can be a very, very frustrating place. So I feel like I was lucky. I was able to do something good in a very short period of time. Um, if there was something else like that to do, sure, anybody in his right mind would want to be able to make that kind of a contribution to the country. But these, the confluence of, of both the crisis and the opportunity to solve the crisis don't come along in one package together very often. I want to play something for you, Steve, and get your reaction. This is some sound of the President of the United States in the 2012 State of the Union uh, talking about uh, the success of your efforts, among others. Today, General Motors is back on top as the world's number one automaker. Chrysler has grown faster in the U.S. than any major car company. Ford is investing billions in U.S. plants and factories. And together, the entire industry added nearly 160,000 jobs. We bet on American workers. We bet on American ingenuity. And tonight, the American auto industry is back. I'll tell you what, Clint Eastwood can say it well, but the president says it pretty well himself. I wonder, though, and I don't think you're one to to sit and pat yourself on the back, the president also said in the same State of the Union, no more bailouts. We won't ever do this again. But you started the context of this entire thing by saying if it wasn't for the leadership, if it wasn't for, uh, you know, Paulson and TARP, we wouldn't have had those tools. It sounds like the confluence of events that ultimately led to have the right man leading the team uh, to, to, to make a fix also meant that sometimes these kinds of policies, these kinds of bailouts are necessary. Who's right? Was it the right risk, the right win, but we'll never do it again? Help us understand where President Obama is today on both sides of this issue. I think the president is reflecting the anger uh, among the American people about the so-called bailouts, whether it be banks or auto companies. People are angry about it. They resent it. They don't understand them. Uh, they see a lot of people who made a lot of money keeping their jobs and getting paid lots of money while they themselves are under pressure. Um, median family incomes have been down. That's, there's no secret about that. The average working person has seen their income goes down, going down. Um, I don't want to engage in class warfare in one direction or the other, but there is a 1% and there is a 99%, and they're very bitterly divided at the moment. And the president, I think, uh, is trying to recognize that and and make people understand that he understands it. The, the decisions that were made by both the Bush administration and the Obama administration to save the banks, to save the auto companies, I think in the fullness of time, everyone will agree with the right decisions. There are moments when markets fail. I'm a free market capitalist. I believe in free market capitalism. But 
capitalism is like an unruly child. It needs rules, it needs discipline, and it sometimes needs help. And I hope that this doesn't come again in my lifetime, but I also hope that if this remarkable confluence of events will recur 20, 30, or 40 years from now, that whoever the president is will act as wisely as these last two presidents both did in addressing these problems. Team Auto did its job. Uh, you left Washington. You cleared up your issue with the New York AG, and you probably sat in front of a screen and wrote overhaul. And now you spend, a, I suspect, a good time of a good amount of time uh, on the air on Morning Joe and preparing your charts for Morning Joe. What's going on in the uh, career cycle of Steve Ratner that you began coming out of the Brown Daily News to work for Scotty Reston to tell stories for the New York Times, and now you're telling stories again? First, I, I do have a day job, which is overseeing the investment management operation of Mayor Bloomberg and all of his personal and philanthropic assets. And uh, I like the mayor. I respect what he's doing. I like managing money. I, and it also gives me a great window on how the business and financial community is thinking about things, so it's not like I'm spending all my day doing charts. But I did come out of Washington both gratified by what I was able to do and also seeing the frustration uh, on the part of many people who go into the government about how hard it is to accomplish anything. And I felt that in this, least, this next phase of my life, and as you point out, I've had a lot of phases and I enjoy having phases and I may have some more phases, I felt that the best way for me to try to play some small part in helping the country think about its problems would be to write about them and talk about them. And so that is my night job and also my early morning job on Morning Joe. And the charts really came out of a conversation with Joe Scarborough in which I said, because I'd heard from a lot of people saying this, that they love Morning Joe and they love the seriousness of the discussion and it would be great to just have a few sort of facts and numbers to help frame the discussion and we came up with this idea and they seem happy with it. I enjoy doing it. Uh, it's stuff that I think about anyway. And I think it's, again, part of my trying to help frame the discussion that goes on in this country. The work that you've done, the leadership that you've uh, uh, given in the, in the financial industry and managing money, uh, you have a greater affinity and understanding for the business acumen of uh, Mitt Romney. Does he need to be a little bit more, perhaps, of the Mitt that the people like you who might be in that boardroom would respect? Would that help him a little bit politically or from an optics perspective, in your opinion? You know, as I sit and think about that question, I think about the guy who really pioneered doing PowerPoint. Exactly, Ross Perot, before there was PowerPoint. And it worked for him. Uh, it worked for him in conveying his message. He didn't become president, but nobody expected him to. But it did sensitize people to the problems of the budget deficit and actually lead to some good progress being made in 1993 and 1994. But I think at the end of this, you all have to be comfortable, we all have to be comfortable doing what fits with us. Um, I feel comfortable doing charts and I particularly feel comfortable doing them on Morning Joe because I know there's a half a million people out there who are very serious, deep thinking people who um, will appreciate them. I'm not sure you could do them on the NBC Nightly News and have it be quite as effective. I think Mitt Romney has to be who he is. Um, I was watching him last night on TV and he was trying he was telling the story about his father and how his father had started out with nothing and had become the CEO of American Motors and I have nothing against Mitt Romney this is not a partisan comment but he didn't do it in a way where the way Bill Clinton would have done it and everybody would have felt the pain would have understood that he felt the pain he did it in this very clinical sort of almost off a teleprompter kind of way and 
I think for uh, I think for him to be successful, I don't think charts and PowerPoint is the solution right now. And so many people in this country are feeling so much pain. I think he's got to convince people the way Bill Clinton was so good at doing that he felt that he felt there he feels their pain, and he understands what they're going through. And that's where that think that's his toughest challenge. You know, uh, Steve. Joe Scarborough has crossover appeal for some of the reasons you point out. I think Steve Ratner has some crossover appeal, given that you've worked for Democratic president, but you've worked for so many years in uh, in private equity. You wrote a piece for Politico, you can blame Mitt, but not for Bain. How will you feel this summer if, uh, if the super PAC supporting President Obama and his campaign itself takes a very hardline attack, even farther, even more fierce than Gingrich did against Mitt Romney and his private equity days. I'm a supporter of President Obama's. I hope he gets reelected. I would like to think that most of what I do uh, is constructive in that regard, but part of not being in the government is being able to say and do what you think. I consider myself very much a centrist, and I think both extremes of both parties get way too carried away. Private equity is not perfect. But it is not it is not some evil criminal empire. And I wrote that piece not really to get into the intramurals between President Obama and Mitt Romney, but to get between Mitt Romney and Newt Gingrich and Ron uh, Paul and uh, Rick Perry, who I thought were being way too harsh. And if I feel that it's going the other way, I'll say the opposite. Um, so I, I hope that in this election we can focus on the issues. One of the disappointments of this, a uh, series of Republican debates, which by and large have been fascinating and, as you know, have gotten huge audiences relative to what primary debates have ever gotten before. But one disappointment for me, and I tweeted about this, was that we had 27 consecutive debates without ever really discussing the core issues of how we're going to create jobs, how we're going to grow the economy, how we're going to even deal with the budget deficit. It was all about all the stuff around the edges, and the only issues that ever really seemed to get discussed were immigration, where everybody was trying to outdo the other one and a bit of health care, but never, I don't know that any of uh, your listeners or any American can tell you exactly what Mitt Romney's economic plan is or what Newt Gingrich's economic plan is, because they never really discussed them. That's because he hasn't released the PowerPoint yet. Uh, well, Mitt Romney <laughs> no, put out he a, 50, has. I'm just a 59 point plan, and Newt Gingrich has actually got a plan of his own, That's but, true. but nobody asks him about them, nobody talks about them. Well, Steve Ratner, we are lucky to have had you on the broadcast here on Polyoptics. Besides the book, uh, your frequent op-eds and pieces that we see, like the one that Josh referenced in Politico, are terrific, and you make the team at Morning Joe something that's worth watching every day, and so for that, we're very grateful that you could be with us on the show. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Steve. Well, Adam, those are two great guests this week. Uh, James Fallows, one of my literary idols, and Steve Ratner, a guy who my wife and I enjoy on Morning Joe every week. Yeah, and you know what the beauty of, of, of Ratner is? that he's, he's got a sense of humor, and his ability to communicate, especially visually, although it doesn't necessarily come over too well on the radio, is something that we've got to get up on the website, Josh, at polyoptics.com. That's right. As soon as Catherine Caperton puts the show together and it gets on the air on SiriusXM over the weekend, we'll put it online 
online at polyoptics.com. And uh, we'll also make sure that some of uh, Steve's charts gets up gets up there as well. And, uh, you, and you can't forget the Jimmy Fallon, Michelle Obama video and the White House Science Fair, right, Adam? That's exactly right. It, it, was a, it was a great polyoptics week, and we will be back for episode 45 only on POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS. Sirius XM 124.